Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 50, Revelation, A Sharp Two-Edged Sword. And in this episode, I would like to continue into the same paragraph where we were looking at in episode 48 on the description of the Son of Man. And I would like to focus in on the final three areas that I didn't cover in that episode. The fact that the Son of Man is clothed with a long robe, that his voice was like the roar of many waters, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And I would like to look at each of those three in order and look at some of their Old Testament context again without apology, but wanting to encourage you as we go. I know this is slow at first, and we're spending a lot of time here at the beginning, but so much of this will help make the rest of Revelation make a lot more sense to you if we take the time to understand just what John wants us to see here. And so let's just jump right into it. Before we jump right into the topic for today's episode, I did want to say just a quick word about the fact that this is the 50th episode of Unbinding the Bible. It's pretty hard to believe that we've made it this far. I know some of you listeners have listened in on all 50 episodes, including a handful of the bonus episodes that I have tossed in at random. Uh, my 13-year-old son asked me a number of weeks ago, Hey, Dad, are you going to do something really special for the 50th episode? And I, I actually gave that a little bit of thought and probably lack a bit of creativity. And yet, the truth is, we're going to talk about Jesus. And I can't think of anything better to do on the celebration of the 50th episode than to do just that. And so um, what you will notice um, in, in terms of this, these episodes is particularly for Revelation. You'll notice I, I had inserted a sermon for last week's episode, and I actually did that for a couple of different reasons. The first is, um, to be really honest with you, I had a conference that was out of state this past week in New Jersey. It was a fantastic conference, but I had to leave very early in the morning on Wednesday and didn't return home until after 11 o'clock on Saturday night. And I am not as far ahead in these podcast recordings as I would like to be, so I do not have them recorded weeks in advance and um, knew that with a two-day week last week, I wasn't going to have time to work on a sermon and work on some meetings that I had planned and also create a podcast. So I decided to insert a sermon um, because I ran out of time. But as I began to think about which one to insert, it, it dawned on me that the one that I chose to insert, the one on the Good Samaritan, is one that I could not recommend highly enough. And I say that because, in fact, of the title of this episode, um, A Sharp Two-Edged Sword. And we will get to this in just a moment, but the way we choose to read what we see in the Bible believe it or not, is um, directed by quite a few biases that we may have, um, may not even realize we have. But in all of the discussion regarding what everyone expects will be coming in the end, the idea of a sharp two-edged sword, particularly one that is wielded by the faithful and true one riding on the white horse in Revelation 19, which we will get to briefly in this episode, but when that scene comes to bear, it is viewed by many to be one of a powerful conquering king who wields his sword with violence and aggression toward his enemies. 
And that is a particular way that some people choose to read those passages in Revelation. And what I would like to do today, since we began with inserting that in episode 49, what I would like to do in this episode is for us to take a look, a close look, at what is actually in Revelation, where it's coming from, particularly in the Old Testament, and then see if we can begin the process of reorienting the way we read the Bible as it centers primarily around the person of Jesus and what he teaches us about himself. And so that's really what I'd like to do in this episode. And so what, what I will do is if you have a Bible and want to follow along, feel free to do so. I'm going to reread, as I did two episodes ago, Revelation 1, 12 through 16, and then I'll make a few observations about these categories that I didn't talk about then. Verse 12 says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Now, all through this podcast, we have talked at length about the role of priests. We looked at humanity as being um, a, 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 a group of people who were to be priests to God in a perfect garden temple. We've looked at priests in need of a priest. We've looked at Jesus as a priest, and wouldn't you know it, we're right back to the same theme again. A long robe that reaches to one's feet and a golden sash. These are simply descriptions of the ancient high priest of Israel that are given to us in Exodus chapters 28 and 29. So there's absolutely nothing fancy about this. It's not shocking. Um, this isn't Jesus just with some strange you know, apparel that means nothing to us. It, it very clearly means that Jesus is the high priest. And so um, e- even when you go to a book like Hebrews, for instance, which is very packed with Old Testament imagery, trying to help us understand just what Jesus has come to do for us, we're, we're flat out told this. Um, in Hebrews 4, it just says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so Jesus, in fact, is our high priest. And one of the first images that John receives is of this high priest himself. Now, We looked at some of the details about him, and we'll get to a few more in a moment. But the fact is, like the ancient high priests of old, Jesus stands in our midst as our high priest. And so, even in in Hebrews chapter 7, it, it tells us that it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And so, of course, we will need to keep in mind as we are both shining light onto Jesus, the bread of the presence, but also as we are recognizing our role as priests who mimic him in the way we live, we do need to remember at all times and at all places that he, as our high priest, perfectly holy, perfectly innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. 
Now, if we, if we jump all the way back to the book of Ezekiel, um, Ezekiel is given many little images of things throughout his journeys, and the Lord is is lifting his 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 body up above the scene that is taking place in Jerusalem to let him know about idolatry that was happening below the surface that nobody knew about but him. And one of these moments uh, that he is encountering um, the God of Israel, it says in chapter 9 of Ezekiel, verses 3 and 4, Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. Now, this is a really interesting passage, and we will reference this later, particularly when we get to sections in the book of Revelation that talk about putting marks on the forehead. But here, God is commanding this man clothed in linen, whoever this person happens to be, interestingly enough, in Revelation 1, the Son of Man is described as someone clothed with a long robe, maybe something similar. Hang with me. But he commands this man clothed in linen to mark his faithful people before judgment sweeps through the city. So here is someone fit to stand in God's presence and to protect the righteous even amid destruction happening all around them. Take that idea again, apply it to Jesus as the high priest. What do we hear about him in Hebrews 7? Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. There's something that he is able to do that no one else is able to do. And yet in his presence, we in fact can be transformed to begin to do and be the same things that he was. And so that's this son of man. He's setting himself up as someone who is going to make a major impact in John's life and then in the lives of the churches. But if we skip down ahead to verse 15 in Revelation 1, we read this, that his voice was like the roar of many waters. And if you flip ahead in the book, in, in your Bibles, to the book of Ezekiel, um, I know that's flipping backwards from Revelation, but we were just reading Ezekiel 9, and now I'm flipping ahead to Ezekiel 43. Read this in the first handful of verses. Then the Lord led me to the gate, the gate facing east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters. And the earth shone with his glory, and I fell on my face. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple." Now, you remember what we've been talking about, right? That one of the roles of the trumpet blast was the Lord entering into his temple, right? And now, according to Ezekiel 43, what Ezekiel sees and what Ezekiel hears, the sound of the Lord's coming, the glory of the God of Israel coming, sounds like the roar of many waters. Well, that's fascinating, because in Revelation 1, we are told that the Son of Man speaks with a voice like the roar of many waters. And I won't have to repeat myself when I let you know, once again, the Son of Man is the Lord. Jesus is the exact representation of the presence of God, the exact imprint of his nature. If you've seen Jesus, you have seen God. These themes are interwoven constantly. Now, one of my 
favorite books actually to read and reread is a book by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce. And without going into major detail about the book, it's a, it's just a fictitious story where Lewis has taken some ideas of the fact that ultimate reality and ultimate truth could be best described as a scene where things are solid and heavy and full of substance and are sharp. And the scene of those things that are a life in the darkness and a life away from truth and away from God and away from reality are things that are light and wispy and invisible and not full of color or substance. And so Lewis sets up an, an illustration of this where he has a man who lives in what's called the gray town. And many people have likened it to a fictitious imaginatory scene of what hell might be like. And in this space, you are given the opportunity to take a bus ride up to what might be considered heaven. Although if you read the book, you know that it's not quite that simple. Nonetheless, there are certain characters in the story who are faced with the kind of life they would actually want to live and the kind of place they would actually want to be. And it's a fascinating discovery of the fact that there will be many people in the end who will decide they don't want to be remade into the kind of person who could even enjoy eternity with God. They would much rather remain where they are. And yet people are given this opportunity to saunter in to the place where God lives in order to experience that life. And what they find is that they are too light. They are too... Um, wispy or waspy. They are too much of shadowy ghosts to appreciate the sharpness and the heaviness and the hardness and the solidness of that heavenly place. And yet they try to take things from this heavenly place in the hopes that they will one day be able to take a bus ride back down to the gray town and maybe sell some of the, of the treasures that they found in this, in this great place. And there's one particular scene, it's my favorite in the book, of one of the ghosts as they are referred to, looking at an apple tree and wanting to pick up a bunch of the apples from the tree and take them back to the Greytown with him where he can sell them and try to make money. Well, the man can't pick up a handful of apples, so he tries to pick up just a couple. He can't pick up a couple, and he finally decides to try to pick up the smallest of the apples, and he can just barely get it off the ground and try to roll it toward his seat on the bus. And out of nowhere, there is a couple of sentences in the book that say this. Fool, put it down, said a great voice suddenly. It was quite unlike any other voice I had heard so far. It was a thunderous yet liquid voice. With an appalling certainty, I knew that the waterfall itself was speaking. And I saw now, though it did not cease to look like a waterfall, that it was also a bright angel who stood like one crucified against the rocks and poured himself perpetually down towards the forest with loud joy. Now this scene in the book and the way Lewis chooses to describe it is stunning. He's describing a waterfall and yet while still looking like a waterfall and booming this voice, it was a one like a son of man, one like, um, a, one, like one crucified against the rocks, pouring himself perpetually down towards the forest with loud joy. This is Lewis's imaginative description of how it is that a person can have a voice like the roar of many waters and he describes it such that he is both a waterfall and a human. 
And it's a powerful image, and it may not resonate much with you if you've never read the book, but I could not recommend that book highly enough. But it's a fun passage because he's attempting to put language to these things that are very strange to us. And yet, in Revelation, having, you know, the sound like the roar of many waters, it's interesting, but multitudes of believers on through the book of Revelation are said to sound very much the same. And here's one example in Revelation 14. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps and they were singing a new song. Now, I love reading Revelation and I love reading it closely, but I want to know if you caught the plural pronoun there that John uses in describing the one like the, the roar of many waters. It's described with a they. They were playing on their harps and they were singing a new song. Revelation 19 is more of the same. Verse six, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. You see, we in Jesus get to become the very things that he is. And one day the loud resounding praise of the believers will mimic the very sound that Jesus speaks when he comes and addresses John. And so these are the kinds of themes that he is preparing us for. We are a congregation gathered for worship, yes? The same idea that is heralded from the trumpet is now going to rouse the people to mimic the same kind of voice in unison that Jesus once held himself. There's always a connection between who Jesus is and how Jesus rules and the way he wants to recreate his people into his followers who then can rule the world the same way he does. Now, as we take the time in the remainder of this episode to look at this last of the three areas here, this sharp two-edged sword that is coming from the mouth of the one like a son of man, would like to take just a few minutes. I'm going to walk through a handful of passages of Scripture, and the reason why I'm going to do that is, again, because what we understand about the Old Testament and what is actually there um, is gives us a lot of explanatory power to understand fully what John intends for us to um, take these images as meaning. And so I would like to begin um, with a reference to Isaiah 49. Um, this is not the first time we've looked at Isaiah 49. In fact, in episode 34, an episode entitled The Servant of the Lord, we looked at four different what I called servant songs in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 42, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 50, and Isaiah 52 to 53. And so this is the second one of the servant songs, but the servant being someone who in some sense is representative of Israel, but is also sent to Israel and is one who is coming to restore justice, one who is going to rid the world of idolatry, including Israel's own idolatry, but one who will stand in the place of Israel, serving both Israel and the rest of the world to bring justice to the world and restore peace and shalom. And so in Isaiah 49 verse 2, it simply says this, the Lord made my mouth like a sharp sword. And that, that, that verse, just as it stated, it, it doesn't tell us a lot about what exactly that means, but I want to draw your attention to how similarly 
it sounds to Revelation 1.16 when it says, From his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. And Jesus, believe it or not, had a lot to say about swords and spent some time, even with his own disciples, correcting, rebuking, refining their own idea of what the servant of the Lord, what the coming Messiah, what the Son of Man was actually going to do with a sword. And I bring this up for the simple fact that some of the things that Jesus dealt with in the Gospels, people today are still wrestling with. And some some people have discounted large portions of what Jesus says regarding the use of the sword, and I might add the use of violence and the place for violence and the place for self-protection and the place for defense and the place for a lot of these different topics. And, and it very easily finds its way into the way people choose to interpret the Bible. And so what I just want to do is begin this discussion. This discussion is going to take center stage numerous times as we walk through the book of Revelation. But I just want you to listen to some of the things that Jesus says and then some of the things that we take that to mean. So let me, let me read for you an example from John chapter 12. Here's something that Jesus says. I have come into the world as light. So that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Now this is interesting because when you and I think of judging, you know, we think of somebody coming in and retribution and you're going to have to serve your your time or you're going to have to pay for your crime or what have you. And Jesus actually makes a stark contrast between the fact that he's not come to judge. He's not come to bring the swift sword of punishment or judgment on anyone. He has simply come to save the world, but the words that he chooses to speak, if in the end people do not want those words do not want to walk in the light with Jesus and with others, then they will allow his word to be their judge. Now, this is why in the book like Ephesians, we will say something like this, where we're talking about in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul encourages the, the Christians there to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And so Jesus speaks a word. He says, I have the word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Paul picks this theme up and says, taking the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And it's interesting because the word word that Paul uses there is actually the Greek word rhema, which most often referred to the spoken word, not to the written word. And so in other words, this isn't saying like, pick up your Bible and hold it into your mind while you were trying to fight off the enemy and and standing your ground. What this actually means, and, and you've experienced this, so let me paint it for you like this. This is the difference between you sitting in your living room reading your Bible, and when you sit in a room with other believers and someone looks you in the eye, and they speak the same word that you just read, but they're looking at you and they're speaking it to you. I don't know what you want to call it, but it is just different. It is just different when your pastor walks away from his podium and he looks you in the eye and he quotes a passage of scripture to you in a particular context where it fits. It's a powerful, 
powerful thing, and it is something quite different from something that is written. And so think about that when we read Hebrews 4, 12 to 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And so again, Jesus, eyes like flames of fire, pure judgment, pure righteousness, speaking words that penetrate even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is how the word of God is living and active. We speak it. We hear it. It judges us, but it does so to invite us into the light with Jesus, not to condemn us. That's the power of the word. That's the power of the sword of the spirit. Now, way back in episode 43, the one that was entitled Grace to You and Peace, we talked about these seven spirits who are before God's throne. And I referenced to you there that there was a passage from Zechariah and one from Isaiah chapter 11 that we would reference in future episodes. Well, here's a future episode, and I would like to reference Isaiah 11 the first five verses, listen to these clearly. There shall come forth forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now, when you read these verses, what you are dealing with here are the seven spirits. <laughs> You've got the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, spirit of knowledge, spirit of the fear of the Lord, seven spirits. And listen to what it says. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins now a couple observations quickly from this passage the first is that there are the seven spirits who are before god's throne it is this spirit that is going to consume this one coming from the stump of Jesse. Stump of Jesse, Jesse's son was David. David eventually becomes Israel's greatest king. Jesus comes from the line of David. Let me just jump right to the chase there for you. But someone from David's line will be embodying these seven spirits who are before God's throne. And listen what it says. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Right, it's rhema, breath, the spoken word. He shall slay the wicked with his breath. But then I want you to notice as well that it says righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And all of a sudden we are talking about some kind of a warrior who's got a belt, who's wearing something around his waist and he's got a, a belt of, of his loins. This is something else that Paul will reference in Ephesians chapter six when talking about this armor that we are to put on as faithful followers of Jesus. 
these kinds of themes, him ruling and striking the earth with the rod of his mouth, is not something violent. It is something spoken. And Jesus is able to love people and come to save them by simply speaking a word of convicting insight from his mouth. And those who choose to accept his word find salvation. Those who choose to reject his word do not. Jesus can be the judge without it being a domineering, angry, obsessive, violent, aggressive action. He simply speaks the truth. And if you love what he's saying and are willing to walk in the light with your own life, you will find salvation. If you withhold and shrink back from his word, you will not. And so in Revelation 19, just to jump ahead a minute to the, to the most prominent scene in people's minds where they think about this sword, it says in Revelation 19, 11 to 16, then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Now these images are powerful, okay? But how do you read it? We know that one of the trumpet blasts purposes that we've looked at in former episodes was to call the troops to battle. Question, what are the troops doing when they are called to battle? Great question. We're going to get there. But the fact is, he is asking them to, he's judging. How does Jesus judge? He speaks a word, a penetrating word of insight that cuts to the thoughts and intentions of the human heart. His eyes are like a flame of fire. We've seen this. On his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. Right back around. Isaiah chapter 11, Ephesians chapter 6. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword from with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Now, you take all those images in together, and many people I have spoken with imagine that what this means is that Jesus is going to be on a white horse and he's not taking any more crap from anybody. He's coming in and he's going to clean house. He's going to wipe them out. He's going to, you know, virtually, he's going to bomb the enemies. He's just going to rid the world of all this scum. Is that how you read Revelation 19? Because with the words that are given here, if I compare them with what I read in Isaiah chapter 11, that he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. And then in Revelation 19, it says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. I would like to let you know that in the Babylonian days and in the Roman days, people ruled other people with rods of iron. And it was an oppressive, heart-wrenching kind of rule. I do not want us to get caught into the mistake of believing that Jesus has simply set aside an earthly way to rule for the present, 
But one day he's going to come back and he's going to take up the mantle of the earthly way to really rule so that he can show every one of his enemies that they've crossed the wrong guy. That's not Jesus. Jesus's kingdom is not from this world. And the way Jesus rules his kingdom is not from this world. Jesus has a sword. He has a rod. It is coming out of his mouth. His words are what will judge people on the final day. This is precisely what Jesus has told us is true from John chapter 12. The way many people choose to read these passages, though, is with this understanding that we looked at way back in episode 4 and the competing creation narrative, and that is the myth of redemptive violence. The belief that real violence is the way to bring about peace, it is not. Jesus does not take up that mantle, and he does not take up that charge. We know this is the case because in Matthew 26, when Jesus is about to be arrested by many of the guards that Judas tipped them off about Jesus' location, Peter reaches for his sword and he swings, probably being a fisherman, was probably trying to kill the, the high priest's servant, but he cuts off his ear. Maybe that's what Peter was aiming for. I'm not really sure. We're not told. But what we are told is this from the lips of Jesus. Put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Now, I will not go on to an incredibly long explanation about what all I think that means, but let me just say this. We will need to confront many, many biases that we have that shape the way we read the Bible, which I think puts us into bondage. Hence the point of this podcast. I want Jesus to unbind the Bible for us. But the only way to do that is to let go, at least momentarily, from many of the deepest held beliefs we have to see what the Bible actually says, not what we think it says or what we want it to say. And in a day like today, where violence is believed by the masses as being the solution to the world's evil, we need this message for the church. Jesus rules with a sword, with a rod coming out of his mouth. It's a sharp, two-edged sword. Not a sword of violence, but one that penetrates to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, judging the thoughts and intentions of the human heart. Because the fact remains that if Jesus were to simply take up the kingdom of this world mentality and one day decide to crush all of his enemies with the kingdom of this world way, he would never be given the freedom to address the anger and the hatred and the bitterness that I see residing in the hearts of real Christians today toward their enemies. And it's almost as if we take glee and sometimes a little bit of satisfaction in the belief that one day 
Those people who opposed us, who we believe most then certainly are opposing God, they're going to get what's coming to them. And I would like to submit to you that that is one of the very areas that Jesus' word, his sharp two-edged sword word, wants to address is the kind of enjoyment that we really have under the surface at the destruction of someone else that we believe is not like us, not one of us, not with us. Jesus will undo everything with his breath, with his word, and he has come to set people free. But in order to do that, in order to save us from our own love, loves and destructions, he needs to speak the words in ways that we can hear. And that's what I believe he's about to do with John. Now that we know the words that this man speaks sound like the roar of many waters, and they also sound piercing, and they are piercing because he's speaking to them speaking about us or, or about our situations with those words in a way that penetrates to the deepest places of our hearts. That's all the time we're going to take for this week's episode, this episode number 50. I do hope that you continue to be encouraged, to be challenged, You very well may have questions following an episode like that, and I would invite all of them. So you can email me at unbindingthebible at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram at the Unbinding the Bible Podcast. And as always, you can leave a rating or a review on whatever app you choose to listen to this podcast on. Thanks for tuning in. Have a great week.